This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Wesley must die for great justice. Hello and welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review and critique show that is the only punishment for any crime. My name is Gip and I'm joined as always by my friend and co-host Dr. Izix. Hi! And this week it's the one that everyone remembers because the really funny hot take of the 90s, all of the 90s was, it's too bad that they didn't actually let Wesley die in this episode, ha ha ha. Womp womp. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, um, uh, spoilers, but Wesley doesn't die in this episode. Or does he? Ah. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Anyone who hasn't watched the first season by now just skips it, so. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I tend to watch through the first season when I'm doing rewatch of TNG, but uh, I, I, I guess if I am going to st- skip an episode, it's one we've already covered, yeah. so, you know. <laughs> well, also the, uh, oh, I forget what that one's called, Tar Monster Man, you know. But we have to do that. You know, uh, skin of evil. Yeah, skin of evil. That's one I always skip. But anyway, this one is actually not a, not as skippable of an episode because it it tries. Oh my god, it tries. It tries to do something, but it also kind of loses track of the game at some mm-hmm. point. I guess it it sets up an interesting thing and then for some reason overcomplicates it for no reason and zero payoff. Yes, and suddenly it's all okay. Yeah. All right. So, of course, we are talking about the Next Generation episode called Justice, mm-hmm. which is the one where Wesley's going to be executed on an alien planet for stomping on flowers. So, wait, wait a moment. Did he get run across uh, Judge Dredd suddenly and, uh, you know, he's all lying the law and I'm going to kill Wesley yeah, now? Yeah, this is like the world's nicest Judge Dredd dystopia. <laughs> Everything must be perfect, and when it's not, you die. Which in some ways is a scarier version. At least in the Judge Dredd world, it's like, well, you can see where they came to this arrangement. Everything is awful. You can see where the dictatorial police policies got here. I guess at least in the Judge Dredd world, you can kind of low-key avoid a lot of the worst bits if you know what you're doing. While here, it's just sort of kind of surprise. <laughs> well, it's an interesting one to bring up, actually, as a contrast, because in Judge Dredd, it is specifically and blatantly written as a satire of American police. Mm-hmm. Whereas this, I mean, we'll get into it, but this postulates that the system is fine. It just in- indicates a moral dilemma for the crew, even though it works perfectly. <laughs> It's like, yeah, there's no actual uh, complications to society that they have this ridiculous system here. It's everything's hunky-dory and they're okay with it. And it's only because these Federation people don't understand it and uh, are caught off guard that we have any trouble. And of course, this is this is just part of the problem of the episode that we're, of course, going to get into. But uh, it it doesn't actually critique anything. So mm-hmm. it's kind of a very empty, nothing plot line. But I guess we should move on because we're starting to describe our critiques of the episode before we've actually described the episode. <laughs> so uh, what, are we, what are we doing in this episode? Uh, some sort of a cast list, perhaps? Yeah, well, so this episode was written by John D.F. 
Black, who came up with the original story, but uh, used the pseudonym Ralph Wills because the script was changed so much by Roddenberry and uh, Worley Throne, who uh, did a lot of scripts changes. And uh, mm-hmm. Throne's actually like credited as a co-writer. So uh, Black worked on the original series as a writer and producer on things like episodes like Naked Time. Uh, he also worked on Charlie's Angels and Hawaii Five-0 and the Mary Tyler Moore Show. So long-standing TV career. Um, maybe knew what Dude. he was doing. Who knows what the original script yeah. was like? Yeah, and uh, guess what, Gepwin? Mm-hmm. He worked on the FBI. Oh, we're still doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I just saw. I was like, you can't. You have to change <laughs> your running joke when we start TNG because do you know how many people would have come here only for TNG? Mm-hmm. Well, then they'll be baffled, and then they'll be get get some expectations that there might be a new running joke. Yeah, they have to go back. They have to listen to all of the back episodes to figure out what this running joke <laughs> we're talking about is. And I'm going to spoil it right now. It's not worth it. No, it's not worth it, actually. Uh, I could also start a running joke about Khan, <laughs> which is uh, played by uh, uh, Josh Clark. Um, he's done that before. Probably will do it again. Anyway. So uh, the other writer is Worley Theron, who this is their only Star Trek writing credit at all, and they mostly just script doctored it. Uh, they previously worked on like Fantasy mm-hmm. Island, also Charlie's Angels, the Bionic Woman, all the you know 80s classics. Yeah, and uh, you know, 70s, 80s, and a uh, bunch of stuff you've heard of, some that you haven't, so, you know. Now, we do have some guest stars. I'm not going to get into all of them. This is a very background, people-heavy show. Um, yes. Brenda Baki is playing Rivan. The, all the names are weird. Um, she began yes. her film career in the comedy Hard Bodies 2, best known for her work in Hot Shots Part Dux. Um, which I've never actually but seen. Do. <laughs> yeah, do. I don't but know. Do. It's French. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> and it's also ridiculous. Uh, and Tales from the Crypt, uh, something called Demon Knight and L.A. Confidential. This was her first uh, TV credit, but she did begin mm-hmm. like working on and off television until like the uh, uh, 2019. Well, the last thing I have uh, listed for her is uh, being in something called Unbelievable, with a lot of exclamation marks, as Nurse Christine Choppel? <laughs> sure. That's a little a little coincidental, but, you know. <laughs> There's also uh, J.T. Luden, who plays Le- Leator? They say his name like Leator. once. Leator, yeah. It's yeah. spelled kind of like Leotard, oh. but with an O. <laughs> but, yeah, he's not wearing enough clothes for that, though. Uh <laughs> He appeared in the TV drama uh, Minor Miracle, which was a miniseries, and he was in something yeah. called Celebrity <laughs> and several other things that I haven't heard of before appearing in Star Trek. Basically, he was in a lot of stuff that I personally have not heard of enough to bother looking up. Yeah, he was after this in Jake and the Fat Man, and then Laker Girls, and then nothing else. Unless you count uh, a second episode of Star Trek Next Generation, you know, Shades of Grey. Oh, yeah. Great, because they he just also play plays this. The yeah, they just play <laughs> clips from this, so you know. <laughs> That's gonna be an easy episode to get to it. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I don't normally mention this in things, but but I did feel like I would for this because it, it it also shows up in other episodes as well. But the the backgrounds for this, the whole time we were watching this, I was like, 
where where is this because this is a weird place mm-hmm. it sort of looks like a park but there's weird industrial looking buildings full of glass and stuff oh and those uh you know uh, nature preserves but you know uh, botanical gardens there we go so it's basically a water reclamation plant oh neat it's a garden path and pond that's built in a water reclamation plant in near la so lots of places film here it's got a weird futuristic look and kind of has like an asian garden surrounding the entire thing Oh, if you want to combine those things, well, here you go. So yeah, if you want to go to where your sewage water gets purified in a nice Asian garden, there you go. This is the place. <laughs> uh, I, I hope it doesn't smell the garden. Now that'd be kind of wacky. I doubt it. There's places like this all over the West. Like since I grew up in the in like the Southwest, there like these aren't super common, but there are big outdoor water areas, which you'd think would be weird, but. Part of it is sometimes to actually reintroduce groundwater back into the environment. You like yeah. you purify the water, pump it into a big open pit, and let it soak into the ground. <laughs> it's like, all right, we've taken all the uh, the nastiness out of it, and hopefully, it gets back to where it needs to be, where we took it from. They're actually very good, like bird sanctuaries in some places. Nice. Now, uh, b- before we move on, I, I do want to mention uh, David M. Graves, who plays Second Edo Boy. I was just. Uh, looking up more actor stuff here. And apparently he's been like a crazy stunt actor for years and years now. Uh, and, you know, some of them are things I've heard of. So like Team Knight Rider, he's an angel and things like that. Uh, but some stuff I'm like, okay, he's in something called Kites. <laughs> uh, but he's also in uh, uh, F9, the Fast Saga. <laughs> and apparently First Edo Boy now owns a record label. Cool. Maybe they should go hang out again. <laughs> yeah, the record label <laughs> and the stunt dude. First and second Edo boy. I'm sure that they go to conventions. Like, I went to a convention that where, like, one of the, like, random duplicate aliens from the episode where they kidnapped Picard showed up and was, like, giving talks. Like, the, everyone goes to conventions eventually. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. So, <laughs> okay. We should, we should jump in nope. here because we're going to have things. And we should get into this nonsense. So the Enterprise crew has just finished setting up a new colony when they discover another M-class planet in a very nearby system with friendly human-like locals. Uh, Riker returns to the planet and he's quite excited about the paradise that it is because there's no downsides, no downsides at all that they could find, none at all, nothing. They didn't look into this in any way. Mm-hmm. Just They did not ask anything. Yep, everything's fine. And uh, there is maybe one question they should also have uh, asked, but we don't really get into it. But is this a, is this a pre-warp civilization at all? Because if so, we should probably... They seem to imply. Yeah. Hmm. Maybe we should uh, prime directive ourselves out of this situation But mostly already? the place is just full of very attractive, law-abiding people who like to have lots of sex. All right. So that's the, the one uh, exception to the uh, prime directive... Uh, introduced by james t kirk himself and uh let's get down dr crusher wants to use the plant for shore leave interested they'll 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 have sex for anything Doc's like oh shore leave yes uh i'm looking to you know have some fun here so the crew is very stressed from having set up a colony which apparently is a very very difficult thing to do uh, picard agrees but he wants Riker to take a smaller team back first to evaluate the planet and he says that wesley should come with them so that he can evaluate how appropriate it is for children you know with all the sex happening. Yes. It's like, if all the sex is happening out in the open or not, and if it's not, then maybe we can have some of the kids in a cordoned off area for a little bit while all the adults, including their parents, are, you know, 
Anyway. <laughs> also, there's worth kind of mentioning, you know, it's probably nothing. There's a sensor problem. We keep seeing like some sort of shadowy thing in orbit with us, but I'm sure it's nothing and it's fine and we you mm-hmm. know, don't need to worry about it. Yeah, wasn't there a t- uh, t- original series episode where there was a sensor echo and it ended up being a Romulan warbird? Yeah. They should probably start paying attention to those. Yes, uh, maybe the Romulans have showed up a few episodes early. (laughs) So the away team, made up of Riker, Worf, Troy, Yar, and Wesley, head down to the planet where they are welcomed by two of the Edo, who are the native people here, who they met last time, who are Leotar and Rivan. They uh, take turns making uh, out with everyone, basically. Yes, (laughs) including uh, 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 reluctantly hugging Wesley because he's kind of young, but... I guess we can still uh, touch him slightly. Yeah, she like so like she makes out with Worf. The guy makes out with Troy because we got to make clear this is a very heterosexual society, right? Mm-hmm. There's no so much heterosexuality happening here. Uh, and then she goes up yes. and like sort of hugs Wesley because it's her job to greet all the men apparently, and she doesn't know what to do yes. with the underage <laughs> kid. Like, I thought you guys were all adults on the spaceship thing that uh, is in orbit somewhere. Um, this is awkward. I wasn't expecting. Uh, all right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I know, like, we have to point this out. It is my job as a openly bisexual person to point out that they're being too heterosexual about their open sex planet. Indeed. <laughs> it's like, chill out, Edo folks. Oh. You know. This is this is part of the code. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I'm sure some of you are bi or gay or not interested in anyone in, in general. So, you know. So uh, they're all amenable and welcome them back, and they're happy to have more people here. It's great. Shore leave is amazing. Let's have all the people visiting. It's cool. They introduce Wesley to a group mm-hmm. of other children, and they run off to have fun. Yes. Because, you know, so, it's, it's uh, normal the, fun. Don't worry. It's fine, normal, wholesome fun. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, we're going to be uh, you know, playing uh, all those games the kids are into these days, like Kick the Can and Hide and Seek. Right? Yeah, those kinds of games. And ball. They're going to play with a ball. Yes. Um, Whose? I don't know. <laughs> so back on the ship, they've determined that there is, in fact, nothing wrong with the sensors. There's just something out there. Something they can't see. Dun, dun, dun. They hail empty space, and then something appears. But it's sort of semi-transparent something. They send Jordy to a window to look at the thing with his visor, which, like, I, I get this keeps being a thing, especially in the early season. Like, they they made the visor. Why is it yes. so much better than the sensors? Well, I guess they haven't figured out how to, I guess, properly use their sensors yeah, yet. Yeah, it's, like, it's not like he just found some super random alien technology that lets him see, and it's so much more advanced than anything else. Like, they made this thing, and they made the sensors. In fact, they made this yes. before they made the sensors, because this is one of the newest ships in the fleet. I, I suspect there might be something like Jordy's like, all right, with my visor, I can actually like give a like a 2D picture of what's going on out there with all my crazy spectral stuff. So it's like I can see it in five dimensions, man. While the sensors are like, I'm just going to give you analysis and the bottom line here as opposed to let you really take in the wonder of it yeah, all. Well, apparently his analysis is, yeah, you're right. It's sort of there, but not. Wait a moment. Is this is this strange vessel somehow uh, you know interfaced uh, partially into a, some sort of uh, galaxy-spanning mycelial network? Oh God! Where there's like <laughs> no, no, oh, no, no. Oh, that okay. is like the stupidest <laughs> thing they've ever done. 
<laughs> it somehow exists we'll between a long time our dimension and other dimensions. It's not a long time in the future. It's a long time in the past. Get your get your prequels right. <laughs> but also the future. So the other ship sends out a light energy ball doodah that makes its way to the bridge. The ball yells at them for being there. I will also say I was like scanning ahead in my script and I saw the sentence, the ball yells at them. And I'm like, what in the world was I writing? But now it makes sense in context. So I should have yes. trusted myself. <laughs> yeah. You know, I will say that uh, the music for this scene actually really does kind of sell that this is some weird, super powerful force coming in here. And then the ball yells at them. It's like, what stage or purpose? And the entire <laughs> ship like shakes as it speaks. It's doing that whole God thing. Mm -hmm. uh, the ball just yells at them. The gun is good. <laughs> the spaceship is evil. <laughs> How many people are going to get that one? All right. So they yell that they should leave the people on the planet alone. And they should not leave people here because they just saw them leave people on another planet. Like, confused by this? Like, why did you leave your own people on a planet, presumably, to die? Anyway, Picard tries to explain yeah, what colonies are before the ball yells at them not to interfere with Edo. And then asks Data if he's made for information exchange and then melds with him in the head, which knocks him unconscious. Data's like, I do have, like, a data port. Oh, God. <laughs> and also, maybe, I know, I know we're not yet in the time period in which one was allowed to critique colonialism. But mm -hmm. maybe you should not show up on somebody else's planet and explain that you're colonials. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah, we just kind of spread out to places, and uh, that's that's cool, right? Yeah, isn't it great? <laughs> uh, and don't, don't bother my people, you weirdos. <laughs> so back on the planet, the kids are showing off acrobatics. Then they ask Wesley if they can play ball. This ball does not, in fact, yell at them. Um, he tries to explain mm -hmm. baseball for a bit, and they are kind of confused, but then they run off. He's like, you know, if you can find a stick, you can hit the ball with a stick. I'm like, eh, mm -hmm. yeah, sure, crazy earth kid. Yeah. <laughs> now, you did skip over uh, Wesley being really confused about what they were asking when it, when they wanted to play ball. Yeah, it's like, would you like to play a game? It's like, ah, uh, uh, ah, uh. <laughs> <laughs> Not that kind mm -hmm. of game. <laughs> so inside, the one of the Edo... I don't know, sex rooms. Uh, Riker and Worf have a discussion about Klingon sex and how he would break people uh, before they find that they can't <laughs> contact the ship anymore. And just to be careful, they start gathering everyone back together. Yeah, it's, uh, we can't contact the ship. Uh, maybe we should, uh, you know, not be wandering off. And also, shouldn't have one of us like hung out with Wesley to make sure they didn't get in trouble? Yeah, they should have, but yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Worf finds Yar, who's talking law enforcement, because they basically have no crime on this planet. Even small minor crimes, they have very, very few police, and they only patrol one place at a time at random. No one knows where they're going to be, so no one risks getting killed. And they're like, wait a minute, what do you mean capital punishment <laughs> is the only crime, even for walking on the grass? That's kind of stupid, right? <laughs> well, that's just how we do it, and it makes our society perfect, yeah. so... That's all good, right? According to them, no one would ever do anything wrong ever because, you know, why risk being executed? Also, when do we bother to tell anyone that's visiting that this is how we do things? <laughs> well, you don't unless you get in a lengthy conversation with someone who's really interested in uh, law enforcement, apparently. We cut to Wesley, who's playing with the other kids. He's running to catch a ball and falls into some plants because so the thing they do is they denote the stuff that you're not allowed to interact with by putting a small white barricade in front of it that is in fact yep. exactly at ankle height 
in order mm -hmm. to trip one and make them fall into the plants, which is, in fact, the thing yes. that is illegal. Yes, so uh, if you disturb uh, newly planted plants and flowers and things like that, that is death. And, of course, because this is how the show is, <laughs> this happens to be where the cops are patrolling. The show mm -hmm. tries to call the mediators, but no, they're just cops. They're, they're dirty yeah. space cops. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're cops you know with you know all that exposed skin but their uniforms are, are gray as opposed to white and you know so they ask some basic questions about what happened and then pull out a syringe just as Riker and the crew show up Riker knocks the cop down and pulls their phasers on them the the cops do go we would kill all of you except apparently our shift just ended and <laughs> <laughs> eh, we can't bother to fight back against these guys with ray guns I guess <laughs> So on the ship, the orb is finished up with data, and this opens up communications to the away team, and they fill in Picard on the situation, and he decides that he's going to head down to the planet. Hell, uh, Picard's probably thinking, like, oh, gosh darn it, alien super beings interrupting it, so I can't keep an eye on my people and warn them that, you know, we got a situation here, and then they get themselves, you know, in a legal matter. Yeah, alien <laughs> super ship interrupts communications for five minutes, and look what happens. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so they have a big meeting to discuss what's going on. They agree not to kill Wesley until sundown because, you know, he's a foreigner and it's he's young, etc., etc., mitigating circumstances. Um, Picard tells them how we used to use capital punishment on Earth, but they've moved on. Uh, they are like, so you're calling us primitive then, dude? He's like, um, no. No, no, not at all. Seriously, don't pretend we didn't say and that. And then they full-on go, well, if we're so backward, just take them and leave. Hmm. Well, I guess we could. But then we're going to have a moral dilemma. Yeah, now they have, like, well, this is the prime directive. Do we respect their laws, which will get a teenager killed? Or do we rescue the teenager and disrespect our own laws? Hmm. Well, seems either option is kind of bad for various reasons. Let's have a, 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 a top-level discussion about it in order to sort of figure out what is the actual uh, procedure to do it here, and then can we figure out a loophole, maybe? Or, and hear me out, because I'm pretty sure, I have no actual evidence for this other than the stuff that I've read previously, I'm pretty sure this is where we switch into the part of the script that Gene Roddenberry added. Because what if instead mm -hmm. of having a nuanced discussion about the moral dilemma at place, whether this is a appropriate way to commit justice whether it is right to support your own legal system to the point that you would let a teenager die um and whether or not that shows a hole in your own legal system because you know a system that would let something that abhorrent happen obviously has some issues um, but mm -hmm. instead we could talk about space god yes <laughs> hey space god what do you think about all this <laughs> so this discussion is going nowhere and picard asks about the other ship in orbit and the ito go oh yeah that's god that dude that dude's god oh hmm. um cool uh crusher calls down to let them know that data has woken up so picard has to head back to the ship uh but he wants ravan to go with him so that she can basically id god for them <laughs> so we're gonna put him up in a uh a lineup here um you know, uh, and, yeah, uh, you've got you know, Q, just, this pick, thing, pick the one, that's one of those energy gas clouds. It's like, which one? Of, uh, Trelane? <laughs> which of these looks like your god? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, uh, maybe uh, like the, that one lady who uh, was playing the devil in a later episode. <laughs> so they take 
Ravan to the window, and she kneels immediately and goes like, yep, that be God. Hmm. Well, I guess we've just violated the Prime Directive again mm-hmm. by confirming the existence of their deity and that, you know, it orbits their planet, so that's So cool. God starts to move in towards the ship, uh, yells at them to return his child to the planet. Picard attaches a comm badge to Ravan and beams her back immediately. Uh, this does, in fact, make mm-hmm. God calm down. So good. God is chill now. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Maybe they, they should have, uh, you know, uh, asked her first about the uh, the god of Shakari. <laughs> the uh, Crusher's understandably upset because at this point, no one's told her that Wesley is mm-hmm. going to be executed at sundown. Yes. Uh, Picard's like, well, I wasn't going to let that happen. It's like, so you, I wasn't going to tell you until I had it figured out. Surely, right? <laughs> Yeah, she's getting more and more upset through all of this because she's like, what's up with my son? I keep hearing things. I don't know what's going on. And she's like trying to press him. And Picard's like, no, don't worry about it. It's uh, I'll get to that. I have to talk to this uh, blonde yeah, lady fine. first. Don't worry about it. We just have to see whether this is God. This is way more important yeah. for, than your son's life. Yes. There's God mm-hmm. here. So they go to talk to Data, who's got way too much information. Like the thing is not a single entity, but it's not really a ship. But it can be in multiple places at once. Uh, they don't really. They understand this part of space to be theirs, so the colony may have been a bad move. Uh, for now, however, mm. they're just watching them, and they want to know what they do. Are they the sort of people who are going to obey their own rules? Essentially, now, that's usually a good good way to get on uh, someone's good side is to show that you have a set of rules, ethics, laws, or whatever. And that you abide by them as opposed to just sort of making it up as you go along. Because that means you can be trusted to at least follow through on what you claim to believe. And they do know that, you know, whatever the things on that ship are, they used to be flesh and blood and exist in this dimension just like they do. So maybe they'll judge them better, but maybe they'll judge them worse. Who's to say? Mm-hmm. So fine. But for all we, you know, for all we know, the uh, the weird alien spacecraft out there are, is, is full of trolls and they're just like let's let's see what they do now and uh, maybe we'll get angry at them for no I know reason you meant internet <laughs> trolls but i was imagining 90s trolls with the hair like well, troll dolls uh, why not both so picard and crusher now beam down to see what's up with wesley because it's almost sundown on the planet uh they don't really make any particular point except that they think this is not a good system and that laws are supposed to make things better like they don't really, they don't have any particular point. They're like, this used to be bad. We started killing people. Things are good now. You know, uh, Picard also needs to protect his own people. Uh, the Edo think that God's going to punish them. So basically, it's up to God. Whether God lets them leave determines whether this situation is okay. So if this was a court, then God is now the judge. So Picard decides to beam away. It doesn't work. He goes. Justice cannot be absolute because everything has an exception. And then they're allowed to beam away. No moral dilemma. Yep, not at all. Uh, once they're back in the ship, Picard just yells, Hey, God, is it cool that we have a colony here? And then God disappears. So it's probably fine. Well, I, I, I thought it was the, the inverse of that. Uh, you know, give us a sign if you want us to remove the colony. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of glows and then vanishes. And like, <laughs> yeah, was that the okay? We're never mind. We're we're just leaving. End of episode. <laughs> the end. Never mind. Why is God here? 
I guess to keep an eye on the Edo, because it, it, they do mention at one point that the uh, Edo might have been like an offshoot of these folks, but yeah. it's not really sort but of I examined. But I more so. narratively. Um, so that we have Big Brother in the area to basically decide the ending, I guess? Yeah, essentially the god is here to distract <laughs> from the actual moral dilemma. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Which could be an interesting moral dilemma. I mean, sort of, because there's several complicating factors here. Yeah, the, you know, Picard does dwell for a bit on, okay, so if we decide to just sort of arbitrarily break, you know, somebody's laws or rules here, then this thing could just, like, murder all of us. And so that might be, the, the dilemma might be, you know, Wesley's life versus the lives of the, th- of the crew and everybody else on board here. And that's something I have to think about now. But we're not going to really come to a a conclusion other than Picard decides to try to rescue Wesley, I yeah, guess. Yeah, I mean, you've got a couple of interesting things here. You have, like, you have the Edo's crime and punishment thing, which I'll get into in a minute. There's mm-hmm. some definite weird things that it's dealing with there. But the central core conflict that they try to set up is the Federation has a law in place that says you have to respect the legal jurisdictions of other cultures. So if a crime happens on this planet, they deal with it the way that they deal with it. You're not allowed to interfere with their governmental system. Indeed. But uh, I, this, this, this actually pops up other times throughout Star Trek, you know, from original series all the way through Voyager, where Tom Paris finds himself having to take a driver's test. <laughs> yeah, so in order to not interfere with this particular legal system, you would have to let them kill off a teenager who's a member of your crew. And this creates the moral dilemma. Is it better for us to rigidly follow our own rules by which letting a kid die or do we break our own rules interfering with this other culture and prevent the kid from dying mm-hmm. so uh should we kill wesley yeah, or not which you run into a lot of moral problems there's no actual like f- definitive good answer here you're basically saying especially as colonizers in a very powerful position you're essentially saying that if we decide to save this kid, our sense of justice and morality is better than yours. And, you know, that does kind of smack of, you know, we are now, you know, we have now established this. So we're going to have our laws then preferentially treat us well and treat you uh, poorly in order to get a, uh, the most advantage over these locals here. And, you know, that's sort of the... Uh, Suddenly, now everyone on this planet of aliens is now subservient to us because you know our de facto uh, uh, you know law situation says so, and so we can you know go in there and take all their stuff or you know strip mine their planet or something like that. And yeah, it's essentially our level of power yeah. de facto gives us jurisdiction over the people who are less powerful than we are, which is always mm-hmm. the case to some extent. You just have artificial barriers in place that say you're not going to do that in this case it's the federation's prime directive uh the closest thing that this episode gets to answering a point is the other part of this argument which is the fact that following your law to the letter would wind up in an outcome that is blatantly wrong according to your own moral system shows that perhaps the law should not be applied in this circumstance because if the function of law is to maintain a certain moral stance and following the law would make you do something that you by your own judgments consider to be immoral then following the law therefore cannot be the moral thing to do indeed now uh, on, on one side then you know you can uh, it's like okay so in this situation 
we have to murder someone in order to follow the law. Uh, then, then there is the, the alternative, the other sort of, I guess, extreme where you also have situations where it's like, I believe it's immoral to play taxes. And so they do not. But you do want, like you wind up in a situation where essentially you're saying, what wins out? We have a written set of laws that in mm-hmm. theory represent our kind of communal cultural idea of what we want to be our moral norms. And then you have your individual feelings about any particular given situation. Now, mm-hmm. this is a problem. In the episode, they do kind of say explicitly law cannot be absolute because you always hit these weird little exception edge cases and in theory that is how our judicial system is supposed to work that is in fact the entire purpose of judges and juries yeah to determine if the law as written and the situation that is being attempted to apply it to is one where the law you know both applies and how it should apply and you know is there mitigating circumstances that suggests that there, yeah, in order to follow the law explicitly, we would actually result in something where the outcome is less just than it would be if we, you know, you know, wiggle a little bit as far as, you know, the possibilities. I do think that this episode could be particularly interesting, not just on this debate. Like, this debate has a foregone conclusion, both because you aren't going to let your heroes allow a teenager to get killed, and also because Wesley is a series regular. Yes. <laughs> so this episode, of course, has a foregone conclusion. It's the decision-making process and way that they get there that is supposed to be interesting. So you could either have a large discussion yes. about this, or the thing that I do find slightly more interesting is you have a minor discussion about it, like they do. Um, you reach the only available foregone conclusion that you could possibly have in this situation, which is, of course, you're not going to let the teenager get killed. And then they spend the entire rest of the episode exploring every conceivable diplomatic option in order to achieve that, which is an interesting one because you know by the end of the episode, in this case, they do wind up just forcibly removing him. But you know Mm -hmm. at any stage they could just forcibly remove him. The fact that they spend time going (laughs) through a diplomatic channel also says something about the way they as a society want to handle this problem. Mm Mm-hmm. So I guess maybe, you know, this gives us an opportunity to sort of think about, you know, diplomatic options that weren't really considered at all. Uh, for instance, you know, ask the Edos, is there, say, an exception to your rules for someone of a certain status? Say, the ambassador sort of clause here. And as, you know, newcomers to your world, do we not count as that sort of thing? In which case, you know, there might be, you know, either no punishment or reduced punishment. Or there could be, say... You know, does it have to be this poison specifically? And, you know, maybe there is some option where technically they'll kill Wesley, but there's an easy way to revive him back on the ship. So we'll change out the poison here. And it turns out that, you know, you know, you know, his mom has, you know, a make the poison beyond you know, antidote for that. That works instantly and brings him back to life. No, uh, no problems or complications. Uh, and so there's some options here we could have been exploring, but we kind of just didn't. Yeah, you want to solve everything with the code of honor defense. Yeah. <laughs> hey, if we could have cut uh, code of honor from the uh, from from Star Trek entirely and had that plot point in this episode instead, I'd be for it. <laughs> <laughs> now the uh, the main complicating factor that they introduce into the episode and what messes up the narrative completely is this god entity, which we have to talk about colonialism now, <laughs> because uh-huh. the 
Surprise! The existence of the god entity plays into what is already a very well-established pre-existing colonialist trope, um, which is essentially set up kind of by a romanticized idea of Western explorers in the Philippines and other kind of uh, South Pacific areas that um, people in British exploring, like British explorers in colonialist era, like wooden ships, age of sail, all that stuff, would wind up on one of these South Pacific islands, uh, usually ascribed to be somewhere in the Philippines, but most of them work for this particular trope. Um, Various Polynesia, Macronesia, whatever you like. And they would wind up in a culture that was way less sexually repressed than England or America at the time period, which is not hard to do because they were very sexually repressed. <laughs> like, you actually know what breasts look like before you get married? What? So, yeah, you wind up in a place where that seems like sort of a sexual paradise for the explorers. Uh, this is the trope, anyway. In reality, there was a lot of horrible stuff happening. Lots of horrible mm-hmm. stuff happening. So these are, these are the stories that they bring home, not the ones that actually yeah. have, you know, you know, where the uh, dominating mm-hmm. activities. But we're talking about the tropes here, because that's what they set up here. You come to a less advanced society that is more liberal and free with its inhibitions to set up a paradise idea. Mm-hmm. And the god entity being the arbiter of their laws is also sort of this they're saying that this place has more primitive laws than you do because you no longer use capital punishment and then it turns out they also get their laws from literal god yes so so uh just replace whatever uh i guess you know uh you know pacific exploration tropes you want here the you know the you know sky spirits the ocean or your volcano whatever you like here uh, and uh you know that's now our uh Stand and we now have a spaceship stand in for any of those. And now this comes to our um, main, my main particular gripe with this episode is um, the legal system on this planet is in fact not unadvanced, according to the episode's text. It works perfectly. They have almost no crime. They have a Edenistic society. It is a perfect world as described by the crew members so they come in and say your legal system is less advanced than ours because we stopped using capital punishment but in the context of the episode in which we are presented capital punishment works fine yeah the uh the situation is the 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 ito apparently have a perfect society does the is the federation society say on earth equally as Perfect if it was being presented here in sort of a compare and contrast. We don't really know yeah, at this They don't point, really say. One can assume, based on some yeah. of the stuff that they've gone into, that Earth does, in fact, human, human culture does, in fact, have more crime than they are showing here. Otherwise, why would Yar be so surprised by the fact that they have no crime? Yes. Yar, who, by the way, once again, grew up on Mad- planet Mad yeah. Max. So you don't get a, like, oh, you have no crime? Us, too. You could also even have a discussion of the Human Federation has little crime, but still exists, and they consider that a worthwhile trade-off to have outlawed capital punishment, and this place does the opposite. You could, in fact, have a discussion there. Uh, My, in fact, Mm -hmm. issue with this episode is how much certainty it brings to the idea 
of capital punishment being a worthwhile deterrent. So, uh, is it Gepwin? All right, this is this is what I thought was interesting because <laughs> I did I did research on this, and I you know I expected this to be bunk, right? I've like done some passive stuff on this before. We've talked about it. Like if if capital punishment, if this idea of deterrence worked, it would just work. You, you'd only ever have to punish someone one time, and it would just function. That is how these things work in the world, and that's obviously not the Indeed. case. So I knew that this was debunkable fairly easily and also add in that somebody else being uh you know punished for a crime that you're thinking about committing should also be a a similar effect the thing that i did not expect and i thought this was almost hilarious uh if it weren't so sad is not only is the capital punishment as deterrent easily debunkable um because let's see according to the national academy of sciences Research on the deterrent effects of capital punishment is uninformative about whether capital punishment increases, decreases, or has no effect on homicide. And uh, the ACLU says there is no credible evidence that the death penalty deters crime more effectively than long-term imprisonment. States that have the death penalty do not have lower crime rates or murder rates than states without such laws. And states that have abolished capital punishment show no significant changes in crime or murder rate. So we have pretty good evidence that capital punishment achieves little to nothing. The part of it that I didn't actually expect is not only is capital punishment a bad deterrent in and of itself, but the way that they've set up their random check system, their very, very few police, you never know where they are, sort of Opticon scenario, is in fact the worst way to deter crime. Because consistently, (laughs) the, the data has shown us that in fact the only deterrent policy that we have ever used that does seem to have a measurable impact on deterring crime is the visible likelihood of being caught. Mm-hmm. So if you actually have, you know, people about and patrolling, then you could say, oh, there's someone here that could catch me. If they're invisible or not there at all, well, it's like, well, I'm going to take my chances. Yeah, the, uh, so this is a quote from the National Institute of Justice. Research shows clearly that the chance of being caught is a vastly more effective deterrent than even draconian punishment. Yep. <laughs> so they have in fact set up what provably with our own research is the absolute worst way to deter crime. Indeed. <laughs> so, uh, you know, in short, then, you know, if their society is as perfect as they're claiming it is, perhaps it wasn't their uh, crime and punishment system that helped it get there. Um, in fact, maybe they've had some sort of crazy societal shift that worked out despite how crappy their justice system is. Well, you are 100% showing in this society, um, they don't go into it much, but the only thing that you can really derive from what they show us in this society is that we have another post-scarcity society, one that has somehow achieved this uh, before the technological level of the Federation, but definitely one that is a post-scarcity society, at least as far as we have seen. Now, we could, in fact, be in just an incredibly gentrified part of the planet. That is something that we could True. be occurring. But given that they present us this, these sections of planets as monoliths, we can only assume that the entire planet's population lives like this. Mm-hmm. So 
given that, you have a society where no one seems to have to do very much in order to maintain an incredibly generous standard of living. Yeah, the uh, only people that seem to have jobs are the security people. So <laughs> since you now have a post-scarcity society, you have removed a good 90% of the reason anyone ever commits a crime at all. Yeah, it's like, oh, I don't have to worry about feeding myself, and so... I don't have to steal that bread. Yeah, there's cool. no desperation. There appears to be little to no class system. Everyone mm -hmm. seems well-fed, has plenty of leisure time, is incredibly relaxed. There is no particular reason that anyone would need to commit a crime. That is, most of the crimes that we have are crimes of dependence and necessity. Someone has to mm -hmm. steal because they cannot afford food. Someone winds them in a bad situation because of overburdening and debt and winds up having to do something illegal. Not even stealing to afford to live, but the fact that we in fact have made most things that come about from poverty illegal. Yeah. It's like, you know, you know, uh, you know sex work being the, I guess, the easy one uh, to uh, point out, but also, uh, you know, if someone is, you know, selling drugs... Yeah, you know, we made the drugs illegal, so uh, bad on you for doing it. Well, even that kind of thing, like if you wind up in a desperate enough situation, you cannot, you cannot follow the law. If you wind up in an unhoused situation where you do not have a place to stay or sleep, yes, homelessness in and of itself is not a crime because we recognize that that would be bad. But sleeping outside is a crime. Uh, storing yeah. things so, on the street uh, is a crime. Hanging out in one place for too long is a crime. Sleeping in your car is a crime. So uh, all these uh, options for being places that are, you know, free and open to everybody else, you know, you can't be there. So uh, you have to find yourself some sort of container, say, you know, a house. Yeah. And then we even make like what it's being dealt with in my city currently, which ticks me the hell off, like even the shelters that we offer people are more dangerous than sleeping outside. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, we're going to, you know, pack everyone in, uh, you know, lack of privacy, you know, bare resources to get by and survive. And, you know, and, and some of the folks there might have ulterior motives for dropping in as well, because there's a bunch of desperate people that sh they can potentially prey upon. Yeah. So we've created a dangerous system for people who have done nothing other than not have enough money and criminalized it. Uh -huh. So that gets rid of a lot of your crime right there. Yep. Now, if you give everyone a house, suddenly people aren't homeless. Surprise! And since everything you do when you're homeless is a crime, and that makes up a weirdly large majority of the things that we use in crime statistics, uh, you've dealt with a ton of your crime. So societal mm -hmm. change is a very easy way to get rid of crime. Also, Indeed. Um, it's very unclear all of the things that they consider a crime in this place, but things like stomping on flowers, that's a weird place to go with your crimes. So it seems like they don't have a lot of reason to put in actual things to make be criminal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe the, uh, maybe the flowers thing is because there was just that one guy who liked to step on flowers and they got tired of it. It's like... We're going to make a law so that uh, the next time he does that, we can kill him. <laughs> That's it. This is something that we do as well. Uh, basically, we try to make societal changes to make things better if we can. Sometimes it just happens by itself. Economic upturns and downturns have a vast impact on crime rates. 
Uh, so you have like an economic downturn. This increases crime rates. This leads to a bunch of dictatorial laws that increase punishment, law enforcement, etc. Um, you have a very natural shift that lowers the economic stress. Economy goes up, economic forces improve. Less crime because less desperate people, more people able to afford things, more people able to afford to not be criminals, as we were saying. Uh, crime goes yes. down. You attribute the fact that crime went down to the law enforcement that you put in place when crime was rising. Yeah, so it was me who put in this uh, new draconian uh, you know, law enforcement effort here to, uh, to put all these uh, you know, homeless people behind uh, bars. And uh, and even though I was fighting against the things that ended up uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, curing the economic downturn, I'm going to take full credit for the change in uh, crime because it's totally not the economics that were behind it. Yeah. It was only me. See, there's nothing here. There's this. So I found this article called The Myth of Deterrence uh, by a, uh, the article is not by, but it quotes a uh, uh, UNSW law emeritus professor, uh, David Brown. So deterrence is, a, is largely an article of faith. I call it sentencing's dirty secret because it is just assumed there is deterrence. But what the research shows us is the system has little to no deterrent effect. <laughs> in fact, uh, this is something that didn't really come up in the episode because the episode is postulating that only the harshest punishment, only capital punishment is being used here. But we have excellent evidence in our own system to say that the deterrence that we use largely more and more uh, jail time longer prison sentences, mm -hmm. actually have the opposite effect of deterrence because people who wind up going to prison tend to go back to prison at higher rates. People mm. who have gone to prison are more likely to commit other crimes for a variety of factors, largely that once you have a criminal record, it is much, much harder to get a job. Um, also, when you are let out of prison, we put a bunch of extra restrictions on you that also count as committing crimes. Mm -hmm. And then so. finally, you have put a bunch of people who have committed crimes in a room together where they can talk about better ways to commit crimes. So uh, you're basically training these folks as well as giving them more incentives to, make, to commit crimes by not letting them reintegrate with society. Yeah, you are putting them in touch with other people who know how to commit crimes, teaching them how to commit crimes better and putting them in a situation where it is more difficult to not commit crimes. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, yeah, I, here, I'm going to take a quick uh, diversion real quick. Uh, that uh, I have a family member uh, who is presently in prison. Uh, and uh, I do hear f from uh, him from time to time about some of the stuff going on uh, you know, in his general environment there. And uh, the long of the short is that it is... A, a a sort of a, it produces a kind of quirky community where you can literally have groups of people that would have no reason to work together coming together in order for a common purpose. Uh, one of the things I got in a letter kind of recently was a uh, discussion about you know him and some other folks trying to avoid getting caught up into something that's not quite a gang war, but it's a conflict between a bunch of gangs who have banded together versus a group of people that are explicitly anti-gang. Oh, that's odd. Yes. 
<laughs> and and so you get these situations where you can uh, you know you 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 create conflicts and people get you know you know get involved in these conflicts highly invested and when they get out of prison and you happen to run into somebody you bet behind bars out there what's your gun first reaction going to be if they were on the other side well it's pretty well known as well just like we do not create a rehabilitative if that's a word i might have made it up environment like the entire idea mm-hmm at least in theory, the one that we say, this is obviously not the actual idea or we would do something different. But the thing that we claim is that we are taking people who are committing crimes off the streets so that they can no longer do harm by existing. And we're Mm -hmm. putting them into a place where we can control the environment around them in order to rehabilitate them and put them back into society as, you know, law-abiding people. Um, But what we're actually doing is just creating strange, torturous environments for people to exist in for a number of years that we deem acceptable, and then taking them out again and putting so many restrictions on them that they, in fact, can no longer integrate themselves into society. Indeed. So uh, I don't know how my uh, brother's going to be like when he gets out, but I honestly don't have high hopes for uh, him, uh, I guess, getting back on top of things and... uh, living a more virtuous life. I'm so. sorry. That's a very horrible situation. Yeah. Well, it's also one of those situations where I do believe he is kind of in the right place at the moment. So it's a whole thing anyway. But I also kind of wish that some of the other people he was around there weren't there too. Mm. It's Yeah, it's complicated. Anyway, uh, back to the Star Trek. <laughs> I'm trying to find another. I don't know if I can find the actual quote here, but there was an interesting... A thing that they they mildly get into in this episode um but just to kind of completely put the nail in this deterrence like punishment as deterrence idea there was a i unfortunately can't find the quote in front of me but there was an interesting part of one of these articles that is saying that in order for punishment as deterrence to be effective you are making several assumptions about the way people commit crimes Um, The first Mm -hmm. of which is you're assuming that everyone who might commit a crime knows what things are crimes in the first place. Yes. (laughs) Which, in this this specific episode, Wesley doesn't know that that what he's doing is a crime, so yes. And, like, yes, we have this ignorance of the law idea because, of course, you can't commit a crime and then just go, well, I didn't know it was a crime. That's, like, a defense anyone could use, and then you have to try to be in the position to prove whether or not you knew what you were doing was a crime. So, obviously, that's a necessary part of the legal system because it winds up in some bad places if it's not. But then you also do have to look at the reasonable expectation that someone did know what they were doing was illegal. Because in this case, no one is being educated on it. We also do, in fact, have this idea in our legal system in theory because we we recognize that a minor is under less culpability than an adult, arguably because we feel the adult should know more. Yes, uh, I believe the lyrics to the song is, if you're under 18, you won't be doing any time. And the uh, second idea that is presupposed in this, uh, in this deterrence theory is that Every person who commits a crime is doing a rational, thought-out calculation of the advantage they will get by committing the crime versus the disadvantage they will incur by being caught for the crime or Mm -hmm. punished for the crime. Yeah, 
Remember that whole thing about humans being bad at gambling? Yeah, which also they are saying yeah. that there's a vast majority of crimes that happen in heightened emotional states, especially what we consider some of the worst ones is like murder usually occurs because someone's very angry and emotional and probably not thinking through their decisions particularly well. And they were even saying in this article that even in a case where you would expect someone to not be in a particularly emotional state when they decide to commit a crime, like, say, a hitman who is being paid to commit murder as their job, they, in fact, are doing a calculation not on whether or not they will be punished, but whether or not they will be caught. Yes. Because they fully expect to completely circumvent punishment. Therefore, the amount of punishment has no effect on whether or not they would commit the crime. Mm -hmm. uh, if you uh, have a means to, you know, get, commit the crime and, you know, get off scot-free without even being arrested, then might as well. Which also brings us to the final point that I had about the society that they set up in this episode. Um, the We get into this thing where you say, like, okay, you can remove a lot of the societal reasons for crime. You can you can remove poverty, you can remove hunger, you can take out the take away the stuff that force people into a situation in which they need to commit a crime to live. But mm -hmm. you will still have crimes of passion. You can never completely get rid of crime. Da 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 da. Um, to some extent, that may be true. However, uh, we do miss the basic fact that when someone is less overall stressed by say living in a society that punishes them for not having enough money, yes. they are less likely to become angry enough to do something that bad. Indeed, yeah. If you're not, you know, worried about uh, everything constantly, you can have some moments to take a deep breath and go, hmm, maybe I shouldn't kill uh, uh, Liator, whatever his name is. Yeah, if you're not otherwise stressed and under duress and etc., you're in a better emotional state to handle conflict than you might otherwise be. So while I'm mm -hmm. not saying that, of course, you can have a society where no one would ever get angry and hurt another person ever, it will also become far less likely the less under stress your general population is. Indeed. So uh, I guess... Uh you know, their society of everyone getting laid constantly has some upsides then. Yes. And in fact, also the way that they, they show this, this also very conveniently removes the other thing that we always postulate as a source of crime, which is jealousy. Yes. <laughs> like sexual jealousy and partner je and romantic jealousy. Obviously, the society mm -hmm. has such a free and open attitude toward both physical and romantic attachment that this would not become an issue. Indeed. <laughs> I am, uh, you know, uh, reminded of that one bit from Minority Report where it's like, yeah, we have few murders these times. And usually, you know, oh, this guy is going to murder somebody because he's jealous because she's cheating on him. And it's like, well, maybe the guy could just chill out a bit. Yeah, I'm reminded of one <laughs> of the, I don't know, there's so many of these things, but like the angry husband comes home, finds them both in bed and goes like, you're having sex with Mark without me? <laughs> exactly it's like come on it, you should have invited me over or at least let me know you guys were having you know some fun you know send me some pictures you know so they very much have set up a situation that you 100% could read as they improve their society otherwise and then mm -hmm. label their dictatorial law enforcement as the reason that their society improved indeed though I, I will perhaps point out uh, something we've are kind of uh, glossing over so far 
that these folks that keep insisting that it's the law enforcement mechanism they put in place uh, that uh, have have so improved their society are all white people. That is true. This is a <laughs> not just white people, but mostly white blonde people. This is yes. the whitest planet we have seen thus far. Yes, and I, I think it's the whitest planet we ever run into in Star Trek, honestly. Which they do. Maybe intentionally, maybe not. They often do this to undermine the inherent colonialist themes. Mm -hmm. But still, it is kind of uh, I, it's borderline ironic. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes. But hey, uh, maybe these uh, Edo folks will realize, oh, uh, we didn't have to kill Wesley and our society didn't uh, collapse. So maybe we can like be more chill about our laws. Yeah, well, it seems like what they could do, given the context yeah. of the episode, the things that okay. they set up explicitly in the episode using no other information than what is presented to us here. Mm -hmm. Every time they have a problem now, they just go, hey, God, is this the right thing to do? <laughs> And if God says nothing, then we do it, unless it's not cool. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, they're going to be uh, worshiping God a lot more. And who knows, maybe in a few centuries we'll have a holy war on our hands. Yeah, that could be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Wesley becomes a strange not-martyr. He is the, uh, the the disciple of the, uh, the great evil of the cosmos, uh, which lives beyond the orbit of God. <laughs> I don't know. Where's that book? <laughs> which I guess, given uh, what eventually uh, happens with Wesley becoming sort of a weird traveler person himself at some point, I guess Wesley could potentially be a, an ongoing menace to this planet someday. Yep. Yeah, I don't know. Wesley also becomes God. <laughs> well, becomes the anti-God for these people. You know, we're not we're not that far into this series. Uh, it's next mm -hmm. gen specifically. We're not that far into this this particular reboot of the series. And my God, there's a lot of extra dimensional doodads running around. Yep. <laughs> Which I am grateful that longer term that they chilled that out uh, quite a bit. Uh, but uh, we're gonna have a few more. Uh, yeah, we are. Yes. So. I mean, at least the Gilem's like kind of a proper creepy one because it's like I'm just a giant weird face in a void. Yeah, I do enjoy their murder pocket dimensions that they pop up from time to time. Yes. <laughs> hmm. Well, I I, I did uh, do a little bit of reading about uh, different types of justice uh, in a more greater context, but I think uh, we're running a little low on time here. Um, anything else we want to uh, poke at, though, on the quick side, though? I didn't have anything specific. That was all of my research. Yes. Uh, I was going to talk about, like, you know, justice beyond just crime and punishment. You know, are we going to be a society where, you know, it is just to have one person with all the things? Or is it more just for there to be at least a little bit of something for everyone? And uh, each of these can sort of start pursuing a different society in total. Uh, all the way down to uh, the specific laws we put in place. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, is justice going to be about procedure or is it going to be about actually doing uh, specific things? Uh, you know, are we going through the motions to make sure that we are claiming that we have done the just thing or is there some sort of, you know, effect we need to be making sure that we're having? Maybe not a sort of a, you know, outcomes uh, specific thing, but that is sort of in the domain of, uh, you know, uh, 
schools of thought of justice there. But there's a whole different thing there. I could probably bring this up later for more. Probably. I will say just in the briefest possible terms, um, if you are interested in learning about what the current theories of like non of non retributive, non deterrent punishment uh, justice theories are look into restorative justice. It is uh, relatively new. It's popping up more and more. It's operates largely outside of the existing judicial system, but Mm -hmm. it is arguably a more equitable way to handle these kinds of things that does not involve punishing anyone. Indeed. Now, uh, if, if someone say ran off with something of mine and they got caught and, you know, the they f- found the uh, materials, you know, in good shape. You know, I'd be like, all right, I, you know, if they give it back to me, I'm not necessarily going to ask for them to be, uh, you know, charged with the crime here because, well, no hurt, no foul at the end of the day. Uh, you know, if they did damage it, maybe they work, you know, do something to help me out or get it fixed or something like that. You know, yeah. that sort of stuff. Well, largely what they would do is take you and take the person and sit you down with a mediator, have you both mm-hmm. discuss like how this affected you as the person who was stolen from, why they did it as the person who stole it, get you both to understand the other person's position and reach a mutually agreed upon outcome for the situation. Whether that's complete yeah. returning the thing, replacing the thing, like giving this person some like government aid because the situation that they're in to force them to be in a position to steal is untenable for them, whatever the situation happens to be. Yeah. It was like, I needed to make rent. So I was going to, uh, you know, grab whatever I managed to stumble across. And it just happened to be your laptop today. So, you know, it's sucks and it's kind of annoying, but you know, if there, I can, uh, you know, both get my laptop back and, uh, you know, help someone not have to like live on the streets. That would be kind of nice. Yeah, it's obviously vastly more complicated than that. Requires yeah, yeah, actual vastly, training yeah. and things. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is sort of a specific, you know, you know, uh, you know, uh, a casting of it. I'm, I'm giving there and all that. Anyway, um, but yeah, so uh, justice. It's a big, big topic, and uh, we could potentially do a few more hours on it uh, yeah. alone. So. And we're gonna hit plenty of other justice episodes. So hopefully, I don't have to go on about capital punishment for another twenty minutes. Yes. <laughs> so uh, yeah, capital punishment. It is the suck. Yes. All right, let's get away from capital punishment and get on to the galaxy's favorite game show. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the galaxy's favorite game show. We have a couple of uh, guest mediators here, though they just seem to be looking at me in a weird way while holding a syringe. I don't know what they're all about here, but I do know that several people have uh, managed to get themselves a bunch of points today, and so we're going to be handing out some prizes. So the first one is the Sufficiently Advanced Aliens Prize. Surprise, surprise. Uh, the Which goes to the Edo's God, because they're like everywhere, man, or something, but also nowhere at the same time. And also they got the big scary voice going on. What do they win, Gepwin? The Edo God wins a bunch of funny hats. Because the reason no one takes this religion seriously is because no one who is the mouthpiece of God is wearing a funny hat. <laughs> that is quite true. I believe... Uh, the religion based off of Dave Lister might be able to help with that. They had a whole holy war about which uh, hats to have. Anyway, our uh, second prize, which is uh, goes as the One Punishment for all, Fits All prize, which goes to the Edo, 
uh, just in general, and their whole po- policy of arbitrary murder zones. What do they win, Gapwin? They win. I mean, they they win a mass extinction because like they've set up barricades that trip you into committing crimes. Like mm. this is eventually going to kill everyone. Yeah, you just wander around long enough, and eventually you're dead. Hmm. Yeah, they might they maybe want to invest in some higher fencing or perhaps uh, signs, perhaps. Hmm. Anyway, our third and final prize is the appropriate reaction prize, which goes to uh, Dr. Crasher, because they're going to kill her son. Picard is just freaking annoy- ignoring her. What does she win, Gapwin? Crusher wins, giving Picard a very uncomfortable physical, because you should not tick off the only person on the ship who's allowed to give you orders. Indeed. So, uh, bend over, John Luke. Hmm. Anyway, uh... That's all I got, Gapwind. Uh, feel free to take us away, and uh, maybe we'll uh, end up in some sort of squee- weird, uh, uh, squishy dimension with the Edo's God people or something. I don't know. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us in whatever dimension you're from here on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! All right, so we're moving from, I, I hesitate to say strength because it's the first season, but comparatively, strength to strength. Because <laughs> uh, Justice, while muddled, was actually trying to make a point and was paced fine, wasn't, wasn't doing anything particularly wrong as a piece of television. Indeed. Uh, and next, we're hitting one of my favorite episodes from the first season. Not my all-time, I don't mm-hmm. think, but I think my all-time favorite episode from the first season is objectively stupid. I just like it for that reason. Uh, <laughs> this one is actually interesting and kind of good and deals with some some themes of memory and past and etc. cetera. Uh, it is called The Battle. Yes, and it's not the battle that we are fighting today, but the battle that Picard has fought in his past. Yeah, people will remember this as the episode where we find out about Picard's first command on board the Stargazer, mm-hmm. something that they, of course, had to start referencing in the second season of Picard, because that's just what that show does. So, you know, everyone remembers this now. Yeah, well, uh, I, I will uh, also say the name does uh, remind me of uh, Jack Horkheimer, the Stargazer. You've never seen that? No, I have not. That show? Nope. Uh, he... he he was a, a guy from like a worked at a planetarium and did like a five minute. Here's some of the cool stuff happening in the night sky that you could check out. Huh. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, he was on PBS. Oh, fun. I missed that somehow. It's all, it looks Drag. like they have most of the episodes on YouTube, as Excellent. with all things. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's good stuff there. But yeah, uh, the Stargazer, Picard. Also, we have the return of the dreaded Ferengi. Yeah, second appearance of the Ferengi. I, I'm going to guess they wrote this episode before they figured out how stupid the Ferengi were as a main villain. Though I will say this is one of the better Ferengi episodes, especially from TNG. Oh yeah, they've definitely uh, improved them in this yes. era. They went from what in the hell is going on to okay this this makes sense not only as a villain for the episode but culturally they solve it with their own style mm-hmm. exactly hmm. anyway next time the battle next time on watchers of tomorrow beware for ringy bearing gifts
have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Maury's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>